Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. Hi, this is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Conversation of the Week. Today, I'll be chatting with Janet Horvath, former Minnesota Orchestra Associate Principal Cellist and author of the book Playing Less Hurt, an Injury Prevention Guide for Musicians. In this week's chat, you'll learn more about some of the unique physical challenges musicians face and how one can stay injury-free while still pursuing the highest level of playing. I had this brief bout with some pain uh, when I was in high school, preparing for college and conservatory auditions. And the term that was thrown around then was tendonitis and overuse yeah. injury. And I think because of the term overuse in my high school brain, I just kind of assumed that this was a result of having practiced too much or just played too much. Um, but when you know, I read your book, within the first few dozen pages or so, you quickly come to this appreciation that there's a lot more to it than just having played too much, whatever that might mean. So I wonder if you could describe some of the things that we tend to overlook or just don't think about when it comes to how these injuries come about. Well, first of all, playing too much definitely is one of the criterion, but there's so much more to it because of the awkward postures that we have to get into to play. And of course, nobody said this was natural in the violin playing position. And most of our positions are forward leaning. And so what happens is that the body develops asymmetrically. And only recently are physical therapists looking at the fact that one side will get short and tight muscles and the other side will get weak. Um, So that definitely affects our injury risk. The other thing is that um, it's what we're doing is as physical as a sports uh, person gets into a, a sports activity, only we're using the small muscles and we forget that. Um, I often tell the story of Bolero. Um, perhaps you read about that, that I, I'm, I'm termed the counting lady because I wanted to know how many snare drum strokes there are in Bolero. And I, it's a 24 note pattern over two bars. And when I counted them, it was 5,144 snare drum strokes, not taking into account the tremendous control required to be unwaveringly steady in rhythm, to start pianissimo, to build to this huge climax 
um, and not stop for 14 minutes. And often we would play it twice in one day. And when I told our percussionist, Brian, he said, do you know how many snare drum strokes there are in Bolero? He says, well, I don't know, 500, 800, Janet, I don't know. I said, no, 5,144. He said, don't tell me that. I don't want to know that. <laughs> did you count those? I said, well, yes, I did. He said, you need a hobby, you know. And it turns out that there's so many things written into the repertoire that are so repetitive, and we're not even aware how many repetitions we do if we play John Adams or Sibelius Symphony or Sibelius anything or Tchaikovsky anything. And when we're practicing, it's very easy to get emotionally involved in the music and lose sight of the fact that we really need to take a break. We really need to stop the intensity, play with less intensity while we're practicing um, to to give our bodies these mini breaks so that the tension doesn't build up. So it's usually a combination of the repetition of the poor postures of the, what the repertoire is asking you to do. Um, and these, you know, crazy positions we're in. So let's say that we are in that Bolero situation and um, we kind of have to go through the two rehearsals that day and, so forth in a performance and we can't just not do it but how much of it might be endurance how much of it is is technique related or posture related how much of it's finding other ways to play like what's our approach to that kind of a situation i think it's all of the above but i wouldn't suggest playing something that's really difficult sitting down some people do this they just sit down and they they attack it so very often I would start with a very difficult, say, long spiccato passage or fast passage where I would play it with a metronome really slowly and gradually over time build up to a speed, you know, start with a metronome set at 60 and, and increase it gradually. That is an endurance. That is um, getting your mind to work quicker and ahead of the game so that you can anticipate what's happening. And that's the key, that your body is fluid and can anticipate motions. So that's what I would call, quote unquote, endurance, that you have intentional practice and are prepared mentally for that. But there are ways to make it easier for yourself and always paying attention to that how can I make it easier how can I play with less tension how can I press my fingers less and release them more quickly how can I keep my shoulders down and my posture relax without tensing up how can I keep breathing you know making sure I keep breathing so that my muscles get oxygen so those things are certainly factors um, and there are times when you can take mini breaks I call them my mini breaks even while you're playing on stage, maybe not in Bolero exactly because it's absolutely constant, but there are some pieces that you'd have a bar of rest here and there where you can do one big shoulder roll. You can roll your thumbs or your wrists. You can just make sure you lower your arms. Just doing that um, gives your body a little break. 
And it just needs to be a mindset. Um, that's the way I was focusing all the time when I was playing. Okay, where can I take a breath? Where can I take a, a you know a moment to wiggle and move and not let the static portion of the movement build up because the, if you're static, it's much harder on the body than if you're moving. So it's it's a combination of factors. Yes, there's some terribly difficult stuff written in the repertoire. And so you need to figure out a way to make it as easy as possible. There are a few things that you said here that I, I want to unpack a little bit further. One of which was, I mean, you just kind of quickly said something about the importance of being able to anticipate movement. Can you say more about that? Because it reminds me actually of my wife having upper back and shoulder pain when she was learning new repertoire, um, mm -hmm. and not so much when she was playing stuff she already knew. And I wondered if that was tied into what you were talking about with being able to anticipate movement. I, I think that's definitely true. For example, I frequently say that um, I use the analogy of the car, that the driver in the car will know if they're going to take a hard left or stop or start suddenly. And they're the ones that are physically prepared for that movement. And it's the passenger that goes through the windshield. Hopefully not. <laughs> but um, in an orchestra situation, it's the conductor who's in the driver's seat. And rarely do you know if that conductor is going to lurch forward in tempo or freeze at the end of a phrase or you know, stop or start suddenly before you even have your instrument up. So your movements are more jerky in the set in that setting. Whereas in practicing, you ought to be able to be in control so that each movement has that ease. So anticipation is everything. I mean, a legato bow stroke has to be anticipated in order for it to be smooth. A shift has to be anticipated in order to be smooth and not jerky sounding. Uh, a long breath in a woodwind player. Also, you have to anticipate how much breath you need to get through the whole phrase. So, so that's totally true that one tenses up if we don't know what's coming. Sight reading, for example. Um, we tend to be much more tense and our motions are jerkier. So that's why I don't really advocate sight reading. Um, I advocate being prepared, looking ahead in your music, trying to anticipate everything that's coming. You can't always, but that will help keep your body from tensing up. What is the anticipation? And maybe it's different from situation to situation, but I'm is it hearing sound in advance or is it just keeping your eyes in the score slightly in advance or is it even physically sensing something before you move? Like, like how does it work? It's all of the above. It's really hard to train yourself to look a bar ahead, but it's really important to know what's coming for string crossings, for shifts, for legato, for all of those things. Um, that's really important. And physically having that motion to hear it in your head ahead of time it's also you know helps you with accuracy so I think you've talked about this in many of your blogs that it's really important to study the music away from the instrument because your brain 
can learn how to incorporate this preparation. And um, they say that the brain learns just as quickly without the instrument as it does with the instrument. And then you're not taxing your body. So um, as far as anticipation in the actual movements, yeah, we, we talk about on the bow stroke of spreading peanut butter or um, a paintbrush that that it it keeps the motion going back and forth so that the string always resonates, even though it will turn one way and then turn another way. And same with a long shift that you're doing a circular motion that prepares your body to do something natural rather than a jerky quick motion, because those are heard no matter you know what you do. And it's, it's similar in any instrument, a woodwind instrument or brass player too, that they have to, you know, kind of do that physical, circular, natural feeling in your body as well as thinking ahead. So there's a lot of things going on, obviously, to play an instrument fluidly and with ease. And, and even today already you've used the word ease several times, and I know the, that there's a chunk of your book devoted to that. I wonder if you can say a little bit more about how to practice freeze, because I think oftentimes in the practice, or at least for me, my focus was on just getting the right notes with good sound in tune. You know, never mind how I... <laughs> yeah, right. In order to make that happen, if I got it to happen, it's like, all right, great, I'm, I, succe- I succeeded at it. But I think now I appreciate how I really should have been more focused on making sure I got there in the most effortless way possible, not just for, for physical comfort, but for accuracy and consistency too. But but I don't know that I would have known how to do that. Like, how did you learn to, to focus on playing with more ease? Well, I guess I learned the hard way <laughs> because I hurt myself um, and I had to learn how to use my body efficiently and with as much ease as possible. So when it comes to a cello player, one thing that cellists love to brag about is, oh, look at my fingers. They're so, you know, full of grooves and, you know, I must really be great. You know, um, my strings are this high off the string. So my first admonition is to make sure that your instrument is set up properly that there are no leaks in them in a woodwind instrument, that the strings are not too high on a cello. You don't have to make it harder uh, for yourself. Um, that the keys on a piano, for example, are not really, really stiff. That, that you're just working against yourself that way. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is, is that a lightningly fast technique is not from squeezing hard. It's from lifting quickly. And so a light touch is really important, not this, you know, even our terminology implies grip, bite, attack. And and, and all of those uh, words imply a kind of tension that you don't want to necessarily have in your playing. So I, I focused really hard after I had an injury on how to make things as easy as possible for myself. I'm four feet 11. I admit it. Um, I'm tiny. Um, I realized that if I had a really good shifting technique, then I could do anything. I avoid 
anything unnatural. So I ask people to watch their holding stretches, holding large chords on the piano, um, reaching or leaning for notes on the piano, um, playing double stops where you're not releasing as much as you can in between, playing in 95 <laughs> position on the violin for a really long time. I, I talk about it, how important it is to spend 10, 15 minutes on one difficult lick or difficult passage or something that's new technique for you and come back to it later in the day or vary your repertoire because you're using different muscles. And if you play something Strauss, then play something Mozart, then come back to Strauss or something technically demanding. So all of these little thoughts about how to practice and how to prepare something can make it easier for you. And then you can play with a little more relaxation and, you know, getting up. How many, how many people plant themselves? I, I was guilty of it. Plant yourself in a practice room. You didn't want to lose your practice room, would you? Um, and um, sit there for hours and not wiggle, not get up, not stretch, not move your shoulders. So that's a recipe for disaster. Right, right. Do you have any thoughts about, I know as a cellist, you are going to be sitting when you're practicing, but for other instruments like say violin or even woodwind or brass instruments, do you have any thoughts about whether it's okay to sit while practicing or should we be standing? We should be trying to do both okay. um, alternating. Uh, it's really interesting that I once had a young lady oboe player come to me with pain and she came in and stood and played absolutely beautifully and beautiful posture, really stunning. And I, I thought, geez, hmm, what's wrong here? <laughs> and so then I asked a few more questions. Of, when does she find that she's having these issues? And she says, oh, you know, in band, the, the conductor is, you know, really demanding. And so I said, well, sit down and play a little for me. And suddenly her posture was inward. She, she was tense. Her, she, her shoulders were sloping. Her, her whole um, upper torso was you know, curved in. And I realized that the atmosphere of the band and the pressure of the band was what was causing her to have really, you know, compromised posture and difficulty. So, I said, look at you, you know, you just a minute ago, you were this proud, beautiful, you know, upstanding, you know, beautiful playing. And now you're all you know, kind of contorted and inward. So it's really important to alternate some sometimes any of us who are playing in an orchestra situation will have to sit to play. And those of us that uh, are playing solo or some sometimes chamber musicians now are standing, stand to play. But always be mindful that when you stand, not to have too much of a lumbar curve, so like an extended position, or slumped over. And that is should be the same when sitting. 
So when you're standing, a good posture, you can try it by, you know, standing against the wall, that you feel that your shoulders are back and down, that your head is erect and forward, not lifted, not tilted, not cocked. Your shoulders need to be straight, what is natural to you. Some people have sloping shoulders. And that you have this lumbar curve in your spine. Now, in order to maintain that when you're sitting, it's a little more challenging. And it's really important that your weight is forward on your feet and that your knees descend from your hips. Very critical. If you're sitting in a bucket seat in a car, your, your back is in a C curve immediately. And if you're really tall, which I'm not, but if you're really tall, sometimes people can feel like their knees are in their face. So it's really important to find a chair that comes to at or above your knee height, but you can test it by sitting and making sure that your knees descend from your hip bones. And that way your pelvis is in the right place and you have a good lumbar position um, in your back and as is in, you know, when you're standing. And then to know that without adjusting you can stand up. And so if you can stand up from that position, you know that your weight is forward and on your feet and towards the instrument, which is what we need. So I um, encourage violinists and woodwind players to sometimes sit, sometimes stand when they're playing alternate. Chalice just have to get up sometimes um, in their practicing to make sure that their hips don't get all tight and locked. Right. I like that as like the stand up test. If you can't stand up right. in one movement from where you're seated, where you're seated, then that means that the chair is too low, or you're sitting too far back. Right. Um, and so you're supposed to keep shoulders back and down even while sitting. Then I take it totally. Yes. Okay. And there are a lot of shoulder problems in musicians because injuries occur when the shoulders are at or above shoulder height. Well, what instrument, what thing, what activity in life is there that our shoulders, our arms aren't out at or above shoulder height and we're leaning forward, that exacerbates it. So, so we have to be very careful that we don't scrunch up our shoulders when we get tense or nervous about something, um, that we don't cock our torsos or bring our shoulders forward and back. We see lots of shoulder injuries in, in performers and in similarly people who work with their arms above their heads, like painters and wallpapers and laborers, they have similar injuries. I've started having spine problems, shoulder problems, um, partly because I've been sitting with really bad posture and just walking around doing everything with really bad posture for many years, as it turns out. And I have these sort of muscle imbalances and asymmetries, as you described. And they only really now in my 40s started to become an issue. But I suspect, looking at pictures and so forth, that, that I was really kind of asking for it for, for many, many years. I mean, is that kind of how it works for musicians, too? I mean, are a lot of musicians maybe getting away with things right now without realizing and then only later will it come to bite them? Or can we tell pretty quickly that we're doing something that isn't biomechanically sound? Well, 
both, I think, again. Um, it's true that, that these postures can be cumulative over a period of weeks or months or a whole career where it finally does catch up with you. Depends on your fitness. It depends on how loose or tight you are. Um, it depends on your body build. Uh, obviously, a uh, small person who's slender, short person, will have smaller tunnels and uh, everything is e more easily inflamed. But we all tend to slump at our computers, in our cars for sure, sitting watching TV or at the dinner table. And all these things are cumulative, especially if you also play uh, for hours sitting in, in awkward postures. So you're um, lucky that it, not catching up with you sooner in your forties. You know, I, I mean, some young people, I see very young people who get into trouble and they're in their teens who are, are, are suffering from pain issues. And it's really in, uh, easy to start compressing your spine and having cervical and, and uh, lumbar issues at a young age. So having good posture you know, sitting erect. Uh, the, the chairs that we encounter are working against us. Mostly, they some of them slope backwards. Some of them are molded with very sharp edges. So, so the way they say that the most advantageous sitting position is a horse riding position. So again, your knees are descending from your hips. Your pelvis is tilted properly. You've got a nice lumbar. Um, curve, a cervical curve behind your neck and your shoulders are square and forward. And none of us do that. <laughs> Very few of us do that, especially at the computer. So combine the computer use with playing for five, six hours a day, and you've got a recipe for disaster. Right. right. I want to go back a moment because there's a question that I've gotten recently from some folks and and it really spoke to something that you're talking about with playing with ease as far as getting a piece or an excerpt up to tempo without then tensing up because i think there's a tendency to just tense up not just when there's pressure but when we have to go from something below tempo you know like at half speed or three-quarter speed and we can play with more ease because there's less to do. Uh, yeah. But then when we get it up to tempo, there's oftentimes maybe like a certain mark on the metronome, at which point it's like we go from being able to play with ease to now we're kind of all tense again. Any suggestions on how to go from slow to fast without tensing up? I think you have to go from slow to fast really slowly and carefully. And as soon as you find that you're tensing up to like pull back and start over and focus on releasing quickly, not pressing with thumbs, breathing, all those things that, that you can focus on um, and looking ahead as we talked about before. You know, I think people are trying to play too fast, you know, these days. Um, fast, is loud, fast is good, uh, loud is best, fast and loud is, you know, better, you know. Um, it's, it's just not true. You lose a lot in the music if things are just breathless. Um, so I think speed is not the goal. 
the expression is the goal and to allow the music to breathe. And if you're breathless, the audience is going to be breathless too. So that would be one of my suggestions. Um, and don't push yourself beyond your capability. In fact, very often you don't think it's fast enough, but in the audience, it sounds fast. You know, you lose your perception when you're, when you're anxious and when you're nervous. So there's a performance anxiety uh, component in here too. I just judged a international competition in San Francisco and the candidates who are very experienced, they were very accomplished, brilliant technically. They also realized that once they got into a big hall, the silences weren't long enough. The breadth wasn't big enough. So you have to be a little larger than life and trying to focus on playing as fast as possible is it should not be the goal as far as I'm concerned. Right. Well, wasn't it Brahms maybe who said that he wanted all of his stuff played slower than people were playing it? I had a friend who told me that as an excuse, uh, we were playing <laughs> the Brahms B major trio and she's saying, yeah, you know, I think we should play it slower. I think Brahms, maybe she was making it up actually, <laughs> but, um, but also Beethoven's metronome marks are really fast. Um, and some conductors really want to try to play at those tempos. And we don't know if Beethoven's metronome was accurate, <laughs> if it's the same as what we have today. But um, the music makes sense at a certain tempo. And when you go beyond that, it loses the qualities that you're trying to to you know convey to the audience i think um so so the ease will tell you if if things are getting too hard something's wrong and that's when you should pull back and examine what you're doing break it up into smaller segments you know maybe a fingering is you know it's a fingering that you've used for 25 years is it one that your teacher gave you you know and hey, guess what? It's not working. <laughs> Maybe you should change that fingering or the bowing or the breathing or whatever it is. Um, something isn't working if you're suddenly getting all tense. Reminds me of, um, I forget who said this. I read it somewhere. Uh, but basically this musician was talking about how sometimes you need to find a musical excuse to make something easier. Whether it's it's taking a little bit more time here or, or doing something different with the phrasing. Is that a little bit what you're talking about perhaps? I'm, I'm talking about making it musically expressive and that ought to make it easier. Okay. I, I mean, I think re the reverse is probably true for me that I look for the way to convey the emotion that the composer intended that I feel and only then will the audience feel it. And if I'm all overwrought, they won't feel it. And I won't be able to convey the beauty of the music. So that, that's really important to me. I feel like that's a, a perfect place to end the conversation. But one of the first things you talked about was asymmetries. Just naturally, from playing the instrument, you tend to develop them because they're not symmetrical instruments any suggestions on on how to balance that out because it's not like we can then you know hold the violin and the bow in the other hand and play right. an equal amount of time in that direction 
What do you suggest for trying to balance out these asymmetries? Well, physical therapists are now realizing that's the case. Um, there are a lot of people that are focusing on performing arts medicine and uh, studying how to help musicians balance these out. So it's, it's very important to stretch and to do some of these upper, especially upper extremity stretches to, you know, so that both arms can reach, reach just as far and reach just as far back. One of the key things to do is always do the opposite of what your body has to do when you're playing. And a physical therapist who I know well told me that if the one thing that the one thing if musicians would do this, he'd see half the number of injuries he sees in people in their 40s and 50s. And that is to use a foam roller. Um, that's a very dense piece of foam that's about three feet long. And to have it lengthwise along your spine, supporting your head and supporting your tailbone and opening your arms up wide to stretch your pectoral muscles out and just lie there for a few minutes. Sometimes some people can't even uh, um, get their arms to the floor at, at near shoulder height. So then lower your arms. Don't you know, strain, never stretch to the point of pain. But you can also lean into a doorway um, to open this up. So the same with um, arms and hands, that we do everything downward, that we should stretch backwards. Um, thumb, we press inward, we should, you know, stretch outward. So whatever you can do to do the opposite of what you do at the instrument will help your body. I have a lot of stretches in caricature form in my book that are recommended of yoga is a wonderful way to do it swimming yeah i love that foam roller stretch that you're talking about with uh, going along your spine yeah I'm, I'm that person that can't get the arms to reach to the to the side of the floor even though it's just a few inches above yeah so it's something you should work on um just like the rest of us that's where we get really tight right. from all the forward sitting so the what I wanted to, two things I wanted to say. One was I have my five practice rules. And if people just keep in mind these five um, rules, then they'll probably be able to avoid injury. And the first one is warm up. And I was stunned when I recently read an article um, I won't name the school, but a, a school, a music school, decided in um, their, their sciences department to do a study wondering if warming up might help reduce injuries and tension in musicians. And I was flabbergasted because there's no athlete that would do a 100-yard dash or whatever without warming up. And so it's essential to warm up. And I mean first away from the instrument, doing some of these upper body stretches, jumping jacks or running up and down the stairs, especially in cold climates like Minnesota, <laughs> where it's freezing cold. And then at the instrument. And we have a misnomer with our, our, uh, our technique building exercises. We think that's warming up. Um, so 
pianists will do fast arpeggios and cellists will play Cosmin and violins will do Duthma. Uh, um, what's, uh, what's his name? Dunis, <laughs> right, yeah. Dunis. Um, or double stop exercises. These are exercises. These are technique building exercises or long tones in a, in a wind instrument. No, not too high, not too fast, not too um, high, not too low, not too fast, not too slow. That's um, really important. On string instruments, I talk about doing long shifts that warms up the um, largest muscle groups first and then doing other things to warm up. It's really essential not to launch into a Mahler symphony or some difficult piece before warming up because your muscles are tight and cold. Take breaks. They're recommending 10 minutes per hour, so not to go over 50 minutes at a time of practicing. Then you can recover a lot of your tone and um, you don't get fatigued. But to do these little mini breaks of uncurling your arm and letting them hang and rolling your shoulder once or twice or wiggling your, your pelvis, those will help a lot. Take breaks, really important. Vary your repertoire, and we talked about this earlier, that you will use different muscles if you're um, playing different pieces. And it would be great if in the orchestral setting someday they would get to that point of not spending a whole morning on, you know, a Sibelius piece and then getting to the Mozart, you know, to kind of try to alternate that um, to avoid huge chords, double stops, stretches, extended trill passages, anything that's really taxing, spend a little time on it, come back later to it. Um, increase your practice load gradually. Now, this is really essential. I find so many professionals want to use every inch of their vacation time, and then they come back to a double rehearsal on Mahler Symphony or, you know, Adam's Harmony Lair or something. And or young people who are a big fish in a little pond and then go to a festival and suddenly they're playing six hours a day and, um, then they're going to run into trouble instead of doing one hour every other day, starting to you know do one hour every day and, and be consistent with time off, of course, in between. And then reduce practice intensity prior to performance. Oh, I've seen so often people who are in an audition situation or competition or uh, recital where they're playing and playing and playing and playing. And they'll get too nervous if they don't, you know, have their instrument in their hands and they're playing till the second they walk out on stage and then they're too tired once they get on stage. So again, the brain learns easily without the instrument to use mindfulness and to breathe and think about the, you know, positive thoughts about the performance is much more helpful than, you know, going over and over passages before you walk out. So those five things are really important to remember. Those sound perfect for, uh, like you said, um, folks who are about to go off to a summer festival for the summer and, and encounter, you know, opportunities to play a lot more maybe than they had been from the end of school to the time they get there. So, yeah, those are hopefully going to help people avoid some injuries this summer. And the last thing, um, this is my latest soapbox, 
is um, protecting your ears. And our world has become toxically noisy. And people aren't aware, I think, of how cranked up the music is in restaurants, in movie theaters. Um, that we have all these leaf blowers and lawnmowers. And, um, and we have how loud the decibels are on stage in especially a, a large orchestra. So it's really important to use earplugs. Your brain learns how to hear well with these musicians' ER earplugs that are deep-fitting. But if you can't afford those, there are lots on the market. I really love the, um, they're called Howard Light Matrix. It's spelled L-E-I-G-H-T, L-E-I-G-H-T. Matrix. They're, they have a solid center, so you don't have to smush them up and get them in right and hold them, and then you can't hear anything. Um, you can hear to play, you can hear to talk, and it reduces the decibels, 30 um, decibels. So people don't realize that decibels work logarithmically. So for every increase of three decibels, it's twice as loud. So it's really important to keep your distance, if you can, from high, especially the highest frequencies are the most damaging, piccolo, hi-hat cymbals, trumpet, you know, obviously electric guitar, to keep your distance, to take breaks, same as with playing too much. And to use earplugs when you know you're going to be subject to some really high volumes. Um, and violinists especially need to know that their left ears are exposed to the F-hole. And so studies have shown that pretty much across the board, violinists are suffering from some hearing loss in their left ear. So if only for rehearsals and for practice time to put an earplug in there, especially if you're way up in the hemisphere playing high and loud. Reduce the practice um, intensity in, in a practice room. Sometimes you sound great in a echoey bathroom, but that isn't very good for your ears. And we found that one in five teenagers already have some hearing loss because they wear iPods or headphones all day and they crank up their volume because they want to drown out the ambient noise. And they don't know what danger they're putting themselves in. And it's not just hearing loss that can occur, but there are injuries that are life-changing and devastating. A lot of people know about tinnitus, which is called the ringing in the ears. But for some people, it's actually roaring. It actually sounds like a jet plane in their head that only they can hear. And some people just want to kill themselves because of that um, sound that they really, really hear when they're trying to sleep, when it's quiet around them. And the opposite injury, hyperacusis, is becoming much more prevalent. And that is the total breakdown to tolerance of all sound. So those people who may not have um, hearing loss at all could be spies. They hear everything as if it's turned up to very loud volumes. And so it, it feels like a knife pirouetting in their ear. And so those people tend to want to become hermits 
and, you know, leave city life totally. And that, let alone, you know, playing an instrument <laughs> is impossible at that point. So it's really critical that we are more wary of this noise pollution that is going on. It's the last pollution that I feel we haven't really addressed. Well, that's kind of scary because it seems to me that, at least with hearing loss, it's hard to know on a day-to-day basis if yes. you're losing any of that sensitivity or not. And, and uh, I assume it's not reversible. It's not reversible. It's incurable. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you a good test. Set your radio to talk radio at a low volume. Like you can just hear it um, before a gig, before a concert, um, or before a big sports event that you're going to. And then come back afterwards and turn it on and see if you can still hear it as clearly. And that can tell you if you've had what they call a threshold shift. So the little filaments in your ear, there are thousands of them, bend when there's a loud sound. And they typically, when you're young especially, bounce right back after a certain number of hours. But after a while, they become brittle and they will break. And that's when you have one of the injuries is recruitment, where a certain pitch will jump out at you as being extraordinarily loud. Um, That's one of the other possible noise-induced injuries that can happen. So it's really important that people go have a baseline hearing test and test it periodically and see there are ways to protect your hearing if, if you notice Sometimes you don't notice, as you said. The the tests will tell you if something's happening with your hearing. But sadly, OSHA and, and government organizations that monitor the level of sound you ought to be exposed to only govern when you can't hear speech. And musicians are long gone by that time because the first encroachment on your on your hearing is the way high registers and you know we need to hear that and with musicians it's not only that but it's discerning of pitch it's sometimes hearing two different pitches in each ear it's hearing tone color um, it's localization sometimes when you have an injury you can't tell where the sound's coming from Um, That's kind of important if you're walking alone on the street and can't hear somebody behind you. But in an orchestra, you want to know who you're playing with. So there are a lot of issues with hearing that um, a layman may not need, that a musician definitely needs. So it's critical to pay attention. What sounds like awareness is is important in many of these different aspects of what you described. Thank you for, for taking the time.